I'm going to bring the Bible reading to us. Um, just It's from 2 Kings, chapter 6, verses 8 to 23. Um, and just before I read, I was just thinking, um, as we were singing, and if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is for us, then who could stand against? Um, and it's just good to connect in our... Well, it's good for me anyway, to connect in my mind that the God that we worship today is exactly the same God as we read about in the Old Testament. So those words of that song were really apt for, for this Bible reading. Um, Elisha traps blinded Arameans. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel. Beware of passing that place, because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha... The prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so that I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed. Oh, Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all round Elisha. As the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, This is not the road, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked, and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill men you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them, so that they may eat and drink, and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Thank you very much. Tom's going to come and talk to us now. I'm just going to pray for you, Tom, as you come up. This is Tom. Let's pray together, shall we? Father God, thank you so much that we now can... Um, hear what you have to say to us. Pray for each one of us in this place, for Tom and for me and for everybody else, that we can hear what it is that you want to speak to us through um, and about this morning. 
pray that you give us attentive ears and hearts and minds so that we really do hear what it is you want to say for us. And thank you so much for the privilege of coming under your word and, and, and hearing from you. You're a powerful God and a perfect God and a God who talks to his people. And we thank you for that. So we pray for, for Tom and for Joe as well, that you'll bless them as their time with us now and pray that you will speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Steve. Well, good morning. Thank you for having us here this morning. Thank you for the very warm welcome that my wife and I have received. Um, it's, uh, it's really good to be here. And I was speaking to a friend of mine um, who is actually from, from Suffolk um, earlier in the week. Um, now, when you live in Essex, anything sort of in the East Anglia area, Norfolk, so they kind of blend into one. So I, I made the comment. I said, oh, I'm, I'm going to go up to your neck of the woods next week. He said, oh, yeah, whereabouts? I said, Norwich. And his face darkened. <laughs> and he said, oh, Norwich. You mean that small town on the outskirts of Ipswich? And then he proceeded to tell me all the positives about Ipswich and uh, warn me about Norwich. But I'm pleased to say that this morning, um, none of that has borne true. It's great to be here. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful city. It's a beautiful church. And the warm welcome we received was fantastic. So thank you for that. It's always interesting when, um, when I preach at different churches. It's always interesting to meet new people, see new ways of doing things, and just to sort of get a feel for... Um, for the way that God is working in a church and through the people here. And it's always good as well to come and worship. Because right now, up and down the country, in grand cathedrals right down to, to small wooden temporary buildings, people are worshipping. And they're worshipping the same God. And that God doesn't demand we build the most beautiful, valuable temples. He just demands that we give him the beauty and the value of our hearts. And that's what we're doing this morning. So, as I was preparing for today, I felt led to this passage. And I'm not going to draw a parallel between... Um, between the Israelites and the, the, the Arameans and Norwich and Ipswich. I'm not going to suggest there are raiding parties coming over the Norfolk-Suffolk border or anything like that. But this passage tells us so much about the nature of God and the nature of what we don't see. Because if we believe in the unseen God, then we believe in the spiritual realm. The fact that we're here today, the fact that we're praying, the fact that we are in the presence of the Holy Spirit and that we acknowledge that shows that we are aware of the spiritual realm. But that's difficult because so often it's difficult to understand what we don't see. We are used to seeing something and believing and scripture, Jesus himself called us, he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, when he was speaking to his disciple Thomas. And so in this passage, we have a situation which is not unusual, especially in the Old Testament. We have Israel at war with a neighbor. The Arameans. And what they're doing at this, at this point, at the start of this passage, is sending raiding parties over into Israel. 
They're going for the, the unguarded, undefended towns, the, the soft targets where there might be easy, easy plunder to, to take. There might be livestock, there might be riches, gold, silver, there might be uh, slaves to, to capture. And they're going in, they're hitting targets, and they're, they're bringing this plunder back into their own country. And yet there's a problem. The king of Israel recognises that every single time he sends a raiding party over the border, by the time they get to the, the easy target that's been identified, they very quickly find that a detachment of Israeli, Israelite troops have been sent to the town. And so they can't attack it because there is a force that they didn't expect to be there. The king gets fed up with this. He calls his generals and he says, right, listen chaps, Every time that we have one of these briefings, every time that we, 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 we set out to go and attack an Israeli territory, what we find is that they've already sent soldiers there. So, which one of you is the spy in the camp? Which one of you is, is telling the Israelites our plans? You can imagine, can't you, the, the awkward silence. Oh no, who is it? Who is it? And one of them speaks up and says, my, my lord, the king, uh, it's none of us. There's this prophet in Israel called Elisha. And he just knows. Every time we have one of these conferences and we make plans and we give orders, he knows. Now, there are different suggestions as to how Elisha knew. One commentary I read um, last week, suggested that actually, rather than Elisha having um, any sort of inside knowledge given by God, he was actually almost an Old Testament version of the head of MI6, and he did actually have spies in all sorts of territories, and he was, he was actually, um, we read about him as a prophet, but he was actually politically a key player. Interesting theory, but I can only assume that that commentator hasn't read the, the previous and the subsequent accounts of Elisha's life because quite clearly he is someone who God uses and who God gives vision to. So far be it from me to argue with a biblical scholar, but I would suggest that actually Elisha, the prophet, the chosen man of God, was receiving this information from God so that God's people could be protected. And so there's almost a, a comedic moment in the passage where, um, having just been told that this man, Elisha, knows everything, even, even when the king is in his own bedroom with the guards outside the doors and there's no one in, Elisha knows what you're thinking. Having just been told that, the king comes up with this great plan of saying, we need to capture him. And you feel like saying, you've just been, he, he knows. Now you've said it, he knows. He knows what's coming. But the king sends out his troops anyway, and they identify that the town of Dothan is where Elisha is going to be. Now, what I want to focus on this morning is what comes next. Because you see, Israel was at war. Being at war is not something that I've ever experienced, and I'm sure that most of us here haven't experienced what it's like to live in a country that is at war with a neighbouring country. 
I know we've been British troops out in different territories and things like that, but we haven't been at war. I don't think any of us have ever felt that there's, there's, there's a strong possibility that an invading army could come and hit Essex or Norwich or London. I don't think we've ever truly felt that in our lifetimes. Probably not since the 1940s has there been that genuine fear that we could be invaded. And so it's difficult to identify with what it must have been like to live at this time. Elisha has a manservant. Now, this manservant is quite new to the role. We know this because in the previous chapter, we read about the demise of, um, of, of the previous manservant who had served Elisha, a man called Gehazi. Now, he appears in several different uh, stories that Elisha is featured in, in in the previous chapters, and he's a very interesting guy, and he serves Elisha loyally and faithfully, and he works hard until he makes one mistake. There's one moment where he has his head turned, and he chases the riches of the world rather than focusing on what God is doing. And Elisha is a bit harsh, you might say. He doesn't say, oh, look, you've really let me down here, but I've looked at your past performance. Let's, let's work through this. Let, let's, let's crack on. Maybe have a little bit of training and we'll be okay. Instead, he says, you're dismissed from my service. And what's more, leprosy is going to be given to you and to your descendants. It's a pretty harsh severance package, I think you'll agree. And so that's what happened to Gehazi. And so because of that, Elisha in this passage has just taken on a new manservant. And this new manservant, his, his first task is, is going out with Elisha to this town of Dothan. And he wakes up early one morning. He gets up really early because he's keen and he's new and he wants to impress the boss. And he may have been going out to get water or he may have been going out to, to try and be the first one to the market. Or, or maybe he was spending time with God. I mean, let's face it, if you're the manservant of a prophet of God, there's no better way to impress him than saying, oh, I've been up for an hour just, just chatting to the boss, you know. But whatever he was doing, he walks out of the town of Dothan and he realises that under the cover of darkness, the Aramean troops have surrounded the town. And there are archers and there are swordsmen. There are cavalry and chariots. He looks around and his heart sinks. There is no doubt. The enemy, the enemy with whom we are at war, have surrounded us. We have no troops. We have no fortifications. We cannot defend ourselves. Look how many of them there are. They are all around us. This is awful. This is a disaster. We're going to die here. My first day in the job and... Look what happens. This is a nightmare. I wasn't trained for this. I wasn't warned. This wasn't in a job description. He says to Elisha, Oh my Lord, what shall we do? The panic kicks in. You see, this manservant, he's just the same as you and I. He's certainly the same as me. He hits a crisis. The fear kicks in. The world appears to be about to fall apart. And the first thing he does, what shall we do? What can I do? How can I help this situation? I don't know about you, but I often find that when I'm in, when I'm in a crisis, it's, a, it's difficult. 
It's difficult to remember that the first thing that we can do is call on God who is in control of everything, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who's written our life story before we've even breathed our first breath. Instead of calling upon him, we, we, we tend to look and say, how can I deal with this debt? How can I get the car repaired? How can I save my job? How can I save my relationship? How can I repair my family? How can I, how can I, how can I? And so often the answer is, you can't. This question, what should we do? We can't do anything. You're right, if that army, whenever they choose to attack, we're done for. But this manservant was manservant to a prophet of God. And so Elisha comes across here as the most cool, unflappable character that you could imagine. He says, don't be afraid. I've heard it said that the phrase do not be afraid or fear not appears 365 times in scripture once for every day of the year. Now, I've never actually gone through and counted, so, so I cannot verify that personally, but what I do know is it appears a lot. One of the overriding messages of scripture is do not be afraid. Why? Is it because there's nothing in the world to be afraid of? No. No, there's plenty to be afraid of, but we've got something so powerful on our side. We've got God. And so when Elisha looks around and sees this, this army coming to attack, he's not afraid. He says, do not be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the manservant must have thought, Elisha, you should have gone to Specsavers. Frankly, look around you. Look at them. There's loads of them. Look, we've got you and me, and there's, there's, there's Dave down the road with a gammy leg and the, the dog that's blind. We, cannot, we, we are not greater in number than them. And then Elisha does something really odd. He doesn't pray for the enemy to turn and run or for a lightning bolt to come and destroy them. He doesn't take the human, the worldly approach of dealing with the problem. Instead, he sees an opportunity to educate his manservant, to allay the fear of his manservant, to show his manservant why fear is not necessary at this time. Elisha prays, O oh Lord, Open his eyes so that he might see. I couldn't help but smile to myself when I think it was the second worship song we had, Water You Turned Into Wine Opened the Eyes of the Blind. When we hit crises in life, so often we focus on the crisis, we focus on the problem, we focus on our own inability to cope with what we're faced with and what we need is for our eyes to be opened to see the bigger picture, to, to have a glimpse of the spiritual realm, to know what God is doing amongst us, how he's using this, this seemingly awful situation in the bigger picture of life. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all round Elisha. What a moment that must have been. He just suddenly 
has this vision. This, he sees these, this army swarming around and chariots of fire. I can't imagine what that must look like, but it's going to be pretty impressive. And he knows that God's there. You see, the manservant had been focusing on the physical realm. He'd been focusing on, on what he could see. And in that split second, when, when the, the terror kicked in, like so many of us, he focused on that, rather than focusing on the spiritual unseen realm, rather than having, having faith that although this looks like a crisis through my eyes, my eyes are blind to the spiritual realm. My eyes are blind to what God is doing around us. You see, I can't help but think that somewhere at the moment there is someone in this very situation. For 20 years now, there's been coalition forces in Afghanistan. There will be people in that country who have come to know Jesus as their saviour in the past 20 years. And I don't think it's going beyond the realms of possibility that right now there is someone in that country who is on their knees pleading with God with the fear inside them that any time now they're going to have on the door and it's going to be the Taliban and they're going to be tortured or beheaded or if they're lucky, shot. And that's the reality of the world in which we are living. And as I, as I read this passage, I just I couldn't get away from the fact that just as this manservant, he's, he's, he's desperate, he has this fear, this enemy closing in around him. That is exactly what is going on in that country today. And there will be people, there's, there's several million people who live in Afghanistan, it's got a big population there will be people who share our faith, who share our God. And right now, this morning, we need to be praying. We need to be praying against the evil regime, yes. Praying for peace and for, 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 for no hostilities. Praying that maybe the, um, the, the Taliban leaders who, who spoke about a change, maybe that's going to be true. We need to be praying it is, but maybe most of all, we need to be praying for those individuals who are facing that crisis, who are feeling that terror and that fear and saying, Lord, open their eyes so that they may see. So that they may see the spiritual realm, so that they might have a glimpse of God's glory and God's goodness and know that whatever happens to them, whatever their fate may or may not be in the coming days or weeks or months, that God is sovereign and that God is in control and that God has not abandoned them and left them to the fate of whatever their enemies do to them. Instead, God is right there in that situation. Lord God, open their eyes so that they might see. As the passage goes on, we see the, the enemy coming down. They attack. They launch the offensive. They come charging in. It must have been like a, um, a, a, a battle scene from, from the Lord of the Rings or something like that. And there must have been absolute terror and panic. But before they get very far, Elisha prays again. 
He doesn't pray, Father, that, that army we've just seen, do your work. Go for it. Attack. Let's have it. He doesn't go looking for the fight. He says, Lord, blind them. Having just prayed that the manservant will have his eyes open, he now prays that the enemy will have their eyes closed. And sure enough, they come down, they, they have to stop their advance, and Elisha says, oh no, the guy you're looking for, you're in the wrong place. Let me, let me lead you. you. You can't see? Oh, let me lead you. And he leads them to Samaria, which was a fortified town where the, the Israelite army were based. And as soon as they get inside, he prays again, Lord, open their eyes. And they look around. And suddenly they realise that there are archers with their arrows trained on them. There's, there's soldiers with, with, with blades to their throats. They have to drop their weapons. And suddenly the fear is on them. Suddenly the fear is on them. And the king says to Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Elisha wasn't actually the father of the king, but that was just a, a term of endearment, of respect. It shows how highly regarded Elisha was. The king says, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Elisha says, no, 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 don't kill them. Feed them. Give them bread and water. The king actually goes a step further. What does the king do? He prepares a feast. It's echoes of uh, Psalm 23, verse 5. The king prepares a feast for them in the presence of their enemy. Eating together, sharing a feast in those days, being um, hosted by, by, a, day, uh, by a, um, a monarch was a form of a covenant. It was a, a gesture of peace and goodwill. And so when they get sent back, eventually unscathed, Hostilities end. And we have the privilege of reading the whole passage and thinking, oh, isn't that clever? But we cannot, unless we stop at each point and put ourselves there, quite appreciate the, the roller coaster of emotions that this manservant must have gone through. And can you imagine how he felt after that? Would he, would he ever look for another employer? Would he ever think, well, enough of that? I don't think so. I think he would have stuck to Elisha like glue from that point onwards, thinking, oh, my goodness, this is a true man of God. And what a God. What a living God who can, who can do this, who can turn this, this, this act of aggression into a resolution of peace. And so... If you put yourself in the shoes of the manservant, I don't know what you see. What I mean by that is, if you wake up in the morning, you step outside, I don't know what the enemy looks like for you on the hills. I don't know what that thing is playing on your mind where you think, I know, I know, I'm surrounded by this problem. Eventually, it's going to close in and swallow me up. I don't know how I'm going to deal with it, how I'm going to cope with it. There is a whole host of things that that could be, and that's between you and God. But what I do know is that from this passage, and from so many examples of passages of Scripture, we can read that our earthly way of doing things so often relies on us and not on God. 
And from this passage, we are reminded that there is a spiritual realm. Now, I'm not the sort of person to see a demon in every problem and, and, and all that sort of thing, but I do believe very much that there is a spiritual realm. I do believe that there is, there is, there is evil out there, but I do believe that God's got it all under control. So whatever the enemy looks like that surrounds you when you step outside in the morning, whatever it is that is playing on your mind, that is, that is taking up your, your energy and your thoughts and your emotional capacity, whatever it is that you're focusing on and you're, that's distracting you from focusing on God, stop and focus on God and focus on him. And he might not solve the problem in the way that you would like. He might not send the army to go racing in and wipe out the enemy and take the problem away. But, but I have faith that God can take you to a point in life where you look back and you think, well, I didn't expect that problem to be dealt with in that way. I didn't expect God to do that. The fact that each of us are here shows that whatever we face in life, whatever we have been through in life, we've got through. I'm sure some of you have gone through some pretty awful things, some pretty tough times. Maybe you are right now. But we have a God who is sovereign. We have a God who isn't phased by anything that phases us. We have a God who sees the bigger picture, the picture of salvation, the picture of the, the, the whole world being played out because he's written the story. From start to finish, he knows what's going to happen. And this is not a God who seeks to destroy us, who seeks to ruin us. This is a God who loves us. This is a God who loves us so much that he sent his one and only son into the world to live amongst us, to love us, to teach us, and then to die for us. And then he rose from the grave. He paid the penalty, paid the price, however you want to phrase it. He did that to open up our relationship with God, with our Father. That's the God who sent this heavenly army. That's the God who blinded the Arameans. That's the God who gave sight to the manservant. And that's the God who used Elisha and who uses all of us here today. We might not feel sometimes that we're quite on a par with Elisha, I'm sure, but make no mistake, if you've given your life to Jesus, you are being used by him. Someone somewhere is watching you thinking, well, what is it? What is it that makes them go to church? What is it that makes them pray and to worship and to serve God? What is it that, that, that makes their faith relevant? The word of God is just as relevant today as it always has been. If we allow our fear to take over, then our fear pushes Jesus further and further and further out of our, our vision. He gets, gets to the periphery and then eventually disappears. We cannot let our fear outgrow our faith. You see... This heavenly army doesn't just appear here. God in the Old Testament is often referred to as the Lord of heaven's armies. When Jesus is 
um, is, is talking to Pilate in Matthew 26. He refers to the fact that if he wanted to, he could call down legions of angels to deliver him from that situation. In Revelation 19, we read about the heavenly army following the rider on the white horse. And so we know how it ends. We can look at Revelation and we can see that that army is still there. We can look at Jesus and see that he was aware of the presence of that army. We can look at Elisha and see that he was aware of the presence of that army. And right now, right here today, that army is present with us. Whether we're here in Norwich, whether we're in Essex, whether we're in Afghanistan, wherever we're in Haiti, wherever we happen to be, that army is there and it is protecting us and it is loving us and it is looking after us. And it might not act in the way that we'd like it to act, in the way that the world suggests that it should act, but God is is in control. He gives the orders to that army and if God is in control we have nothing to be afraid of. Amen? We're about to sing a song by Graham Kendrick and the last verse says I long to be where the praise is never ending. I yearn to dwell where the glory never fades where countless worshippers will share one song and cries of worthy will honour the Lamb. That's the end game. That's where we'll get to one day. That is what is waiting for us. When our time on this earth is done, that is what awaits us, our place in God's eternal kingdom. But until then, we are not left alone to live this life. Instead, we have God with us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word and thank you for its eternal relevance to this life. Lord, thank you that you created each and every one of us, that you knew the story of our lives even before we had set foot on this planet before we left our mother's womb. But Father God, we look around us and so often it is so easy to see bad news, negative situations, atrocities being committed. And so Father, we lift up to you Anybody who is in that situation in Afghanistan, the situation of, of having come to know you and suddenly, suddenly being in fear of their life. Lord God, I pray for the, the child who was lifted over the wall into the, the airport this week. We don't know what happened to the parents. We don't know if they're with the child, but Father, we pray that you will take away the fear that you will open their eyes. Father God, we pray for, for aid workers and for interpreters and for other Afghans who have worked with the coalition forces. Father God, as they are left behind facing such a terrifying future, Lord God, open their eyes so that they might see. Father, for anyone in that country who, 
who, who recognises you as Lord and Saviour, who's given their life to you. Father, open their eyes so that they might see. Father God, for the leaders of the oppressive regime, open their eyes so that they might see. Lord God, for Christians throughout the world, whether facing international chaos or whether facing a very personal challenge for us all, Lord God, open our eyes so that we might see, so that we might see you, so that we might see your power and your glory, so that we might have that reassurance as we, as we carry out our, our, our daily lives, as we practice our faith, as we recognise our own weakness, our own inability to, to cope with so many of the problems that the world throws at us, Lord, open our eyes so that we might see that you are right there with us. Forgive us for the times, Lord, that we perhaps take our eyes off you, allow ourselves to be distracted. And Father God, open our eyes so that we might see you that we might bring you back to the very centre of our existence so that we might focus our very being on you and so that we might strive to be the disciples that you have called us to be. Father God, bless us this day, bless this church, bless these people and thank you for your Holy Spirit and your presence with us and in us. In Jesus' name, amen.